Anytime that we've got a market interruption, the more set up your firm is to adapt to that, the better off you'll be. And I think what we've seen already in this pandemic is law firms that were not prepared are scaling back or scaling down or closing down. And so there's more demand for the lawyers out there that are that are working now than there was in February. I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters podcast. On Daily Matters, we talk with legal professionals, industry leaders, and subject matter experts about the future of law. We explore where the legal industry is headed, how legal practice is changing, and what you can be doing to position yourself for success. This episode of Daily Matters is brought to you by the 2020 Clio Cloud Conference, the world's best legal conference, which is going completely virtual for the first time in eight years. Get your pass now at cliocloudconference.com. Today's guest is attorney, entrepreneur, speaker, and author, Billy Tarasio. Billy is the owner of Modern Law, Access Legal, and Modern Law Practice. And in 2018, she received the Reisman Award for Legal Innovation presented at the Clio Cloud Conference. Billy, it's great to have you here today. Hi, good morning, Jack. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. It's, it's great to chat with you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, Billy, to start off, uh, can you give our listeners a background on your career, uh, why you became an attorney, and some of the founding story around modern law and how that's grown over the years? Yeah, sure. So um, Modern Law Arizona started essentially 10 years ago um, after I moved from Oregon. And uh, I finished law school in 2005 in Oregon and I had my first kiddo in law school, or my third year of law school. Um, and so the combination of wanting like a, a, a different lifestyle and being pretty entrepreneurial by nature led me to open a firm. And I knew I wanted to do family law because I had had you know, a personal experience with family law when, when my parents divorced. I knew it was something that I could feel passionate about and that really affected families and humans. And I wanted to be a part of that. I knew I could make an impact with that. And I knew I could also hopefully create a practice that served clients in a different way and that served lawyers in a different way. And so that, you know, iteration after iteration after iteration of that concept has led to where I'm at now, which is owning a, a family law firm and um, a sister company that is a certified legal doc prep company, Access Legal. And we actually changed the name. It's now I do over dot life um, because Access Legal, you know, there were just a lot of Access Legals. <laughs> But uh, that's, that's kind of where we're at now. We have a, a growing firm, a dynamic firm, um, and you know, we're located in the greater Phoenix area. And, and there's a, another sister company, if I understand things correctly, Modern Law Practice as well, where you're consulting with, with other law firms and helping them embrace some of the practices that, that have helped Modern Law become so successful. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And, and I'd love to hear more about uh, what was formerly Access Legal and, and, and what a, a document prep service company is, if you, if you can elaborate on that concept. Sure. So over the years, um, I was always experimenting and people would just ask me to speak about things. And so first it was limited scope 
services and how that works and how you could offer pay-as-you-go services. And, um, and, and then it became very technologically based because, you know, we always had to maximize the value of technology in order to be as efficient as we possibly could. And so I was, I was always speaking and writing and just sharing experiments and people, lawyers tend to be, tend to have a lower risk tolerance than I do. And so many of them were like, can you just tell me how to do it? <laughs> what worked, what didn't work and how can I do it? And modern law practice um, essentially packages things that work and outsources services that work. So one of the fundamental offerings of modern law practice is an outsourced intake service, which is so valuable to my law firm and all of the other law firms that use it. Um, this is a trained outside sales force that then works within your systems, knows your attorneys inside and out, um, and their sole job is to you know, answer the phone, um, connect with the people on the phone, collect any payment, schedule on your calendar, send reminders, and then I have them also collect net promoter scores and get online reviews. That's their job. And, um, and we offer that service to other law firms. Um, we also offer individual consulting and then we offer also online courses. Um, and so the online course that is available now is specific to um, intake. So if you're hiring an internal intake person or if you're doing intake within your firm, how to do it exactly. And then consultations, because consultations are a completely different ballgame than practicing law. And most lawyers conversion rates are very, very low. And by following a consultative sales model, you can start your entire relationship off completely differently than you normally would in a firm, set yourselves up for, for future MPS and referrals. And it just, it really makes a huge difference. So that course is available online as well. So I, I think the intake concept you've built out is so, so interesting. And as you know, from our last legal trends report, our 2019 legal trends report, one of the things we, we dug into in this legal trends report is what is the average responsiveness of the law firm when you reach out uh, and try to get a hold of, of a lawyer. We, we experimented both by uh, reaching out by email and reaching out by phone call and saw some pretty catastrophically bad response rates, uh, not, sometimes voicemails that were unreturned, emails that were not responded to, if they were responded to as often after a matter of, of days uh, or, or longer, responses that left a lot to be desired. Mm -hmm. So it feels like this initial touch point with potential clients is something that most law firms don't put enough effort into and don't even have dedicated resources uh, assigned to. Can, can you talk a little bit about what led you down the path of, of realizing this should be a, a dedicated function within the law firm as opposed to something that you're, as many law firms do, layer on top of other people's core responsibilities? Absolutely. And when my law firm started out, it was layered on to other people's responsibilities. Like that's just you know, the way it is when you start out and you're, and you're new and you're bare bones and you're lean. Um, but uh, what led me to get an intake person was I started tracking data and the data I found showed me I had a massive problem. I wasn't even aware of it. 
Um, but I just stumbled upon, upon that information. And then I started reaching out to people that, you know, Rainmaker Institute and Lee Rosen and people who knew what they were doing because I didn't. And they and they said, you know, you got to hire an intake person. And I and I did. And it made a massive, tremendous difference in the firm. Like if you're trying to grow your law firm, this has to be a priority and it has to be a dedicated function. And it's not like it's not fair to ask the people in your law office to do it well while having other expectations of them. You've put them in an impossible situation and you're, you're, you know, you're hindering your law firm's growth and you're really not serving your employees as well as you possibly could either. So it's just, it's something that um, is low hanging fruit, easy to fix and will make a tremendous difference. What data did you did you look at that highlighted how severe that problem was for you back in the early oh, days? Oh, it's bad. <laughs> this is forever implanted in my memory. So, um, we we were tracking leads and we were tracking new hires. That was it. We hadn't broken down into like the same extent that we are now, but um, but it was a it was a February and we had had a crazy busy month and we were doing free phone consultations and I had given away 103 free phone consultations and we had had seven law firm hires. And I didn't know what conversion was supposed to be. But, but, but I knew you knew that, that wasn't was right. Really bad. <laughs> yeah. Really, really bad. So So that was the wake up call. And that then, was the wake up call. Can, can you tell us about the impact that having this dedicated in per, intake person had for, for you? That sounds like it was a, a dedicated hire at that point. Um, and, and what kind of impact did that have? Well, there was a couple changes that needed to come out of that. So we stopped doing free phone consultations. We, we really started rethinking our, our, our process of getting clients at that point. And so the first change I made was how to do consultations. And then the second change I made was how do we get an intake team? Um, and, you know, we never, ever, our conversion rate immediately went up, immediately. Like simple, simple awareness and small tweaks um, really fixed that. But uh, over time, just uh, drilling down into each metric, how many leads actually schedule the consult? How many consultations actually show up? Should we charge a cancellation fee? You know, drilling down into each metric has allowed us to optimize intake. And now we're at a point where we have a 70% conversion rate. Wow, that's awesome. It's really good. It's really good. Like people don't even know that that's really good, but it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's really good. That's a good conversion. <laughs> um, and when you, I, I think something you've done with, with, modern law practice as well is, is make this a service. This is, this is cool where you don't necessarily need to think about like hiring a person is a large step in cost. If, if you're saying I'm going to make one or potentially even more than one person, if you're thinking about having some robustness and some flexibility and resiliency built into your right. intake system, you need more than one person. That's a large step in cost. So this idea of like intake as a service almost uh, is, is, is pretty neat. Can you talk about what's in, involved there and, and how you structure that service? 
Yes. And, and I, I want to just like confirm everything that you're saying, because before I outsourced to the same team that we're now making available to other people, I had two dedicated intake people and you needed it. You needed two people because you have to answer the phone all the time and people get to go to the bathroom. People get to yeah. go yeah. on vacation and get sick and you can't have your phone not be answered by your people. <laughs> like you yeah. don't want it to be an afterthought when you've got people who are sick or whatever. And then there's the training and there's burnout. So intake people burn out. Intake is not a job you can do forever because all they're doing is absorbing um, trauma all the time. And they don't get the, the ability of the law firm to process the trauma with the person. So they, they usually have a lifespan of about a year, maybe a year and a half. So there's constant training and turnover. And so to get that, to not have to do that in my firm anymore is fantastic. Now, I still have to do that through modern law practice, um, but uh, at the firm, I don't, which is amazing. Um, and the way that, that it works when people hire us, and, and, you know, we've gotten pretty, the demand has gone up since pandemic, which is, is great. Um, but first thing we go in is we determine what does their intake system look like? Certain things we have optimized. Clio Grow, we have optimized. So for, we, we really work with either Acuity or Clio Grow and that's it. Now Acuity can zap into most all other systems. So part of our, our setup is figuring out their current um, tech stack mm -hmm. and processes, tweaking whatever we think we can make better, learning and doing whatever they do well that they wanna keep doing and then training on practice calls, training on learning the law firm uh, lawyers and the superpowers of each lawyer, um, really understanding the firm and then you know, forwarding the phones and, and going from there. And th this is an important point you just made that I wanna highlight as well. And I, I think it's key. There's, there's some call answering services out there that you know, are gonna send you an email that you got a voicemail from this client and here's what they wanted or whatever the case might be. But, what you're doing is actually integrating with the systems that the law firm uses. So if they're using Clio Grow as their intake system, modern law practice staff are integrating with that system, their users on that system and plugging in in the same way would as if they were staff. And it's part of that whole integrated intake system, which I think is, is really key to being responsive as possible and having, having this be a value add as opposed to something that might be adding a drag coefficient to your firm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We are, we are communicating in Slack live real time. So this is an extension of your firm. Um, we like to understand the culture of the firm and make sure that the, the intake team knows the culture of the firm. So we've got a client in New Jersey, they are get to the point. Um, we've, got, yeah. we've got people in Texarkana and they're, they, the culture is a little different. And so we're paying attention to that because we are an extension of the firm. And the other really cool thing is our team knows Clio Grow inside now. And what we've seen with a lot of Clio Grow customers, they come to us, they say they're using Clio Grow, but they haven't optimized Clio Grow. Right. That's, that's its own standalone course on Modern Law Practices website, how to optimize Clio Grow to, for intake. So I would just highly suggest if you're using Clio Grow, and you've got your own intake team, check out that course. It's super cheap, fast, and it will just help you set up to optimize all of the great resources and features on ClioGrow. So Billy, you, 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 we've talked a lot about people and, and, and process so far. Technology is also something that I, I think is a, 
a recurring theme in how you've looked at, at innovating in your law practice and beyond. Uh, you, you won a 2018 Reason Award for law firm innovation um, and, and technology is at the heart of, of some of the innovative work you're doing. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how you look at technology as a, a strategic tool to growing your, your firm and, and getting a, an edge when it comes to delivering client service and acquiring new clients? Definitely. Um, I think, you know, I kind of fell into being a tech forward firm just because of the timing of when I opened and the fact that I was a Mac user. So you put together the fact that I am a Mac user and I opened in Arizona in 2010 um, and I didn't want, I didn't have the money to get a server and it dictates your future. So, you know, we, we were just set up to, to be investigating in technology all the time. And then one of our core values, like a fundamental part of who we are is constant growth and constant improvement. And that means that means looking for efficiency all the time and looking for ways to serve clients better all the time. Now that really served us when we hit pandemic because our firm was set up to immediately distribute without any hiccups. We had to make small tweaks. You know, how will mail be processed? How will we communicate differently? But this got worked out within a week and our productivity has not, it has gone up we're making more money now than we've ever made because we had technology and systems and people were using them uniformly. So technology, I think, is a tool that needs to be part of your culture, but technology on its own won't do anything if you're not adopting, you know, standard usage procedures right. and you're, you know? Yeah. It's just a tool on its own, but you need, right. you, you need the, the process and the the culture where this is actually integral to how you you operate, um, and I, I think you made a, a cool observation. You you shifted to work from home in a fully distributed way in the pandemic, and not only didn't miss a beat, but actually saw business and productivity pick up as a as a result. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, about that and maybe what you've seen in terms of underlying demand in the COVID nineteen era as well? Yes. So we had about one month where demand was down. Um, I think it was March. Maybe, maybe it was April. Maybe March was fine and April was the month that was really down. Um, but since then, we've seen just demand go up. The, the divorce market is, is up. People, need, people have more family law problems now than they did before. And because there are fewer law firms that are able to meet those needs, mm -hmm. the demand on law firms that are fully functioning and ready to go has gone up. And I think, you know, we're going to talk about these, the deregulation, but anytime that we've got a market interruption, the more set up your firm is to adapt to that, the better off you'll be. And I think what we've seen already in this pandemic is law firms that were not prepared are scaling back or scaling down or closing town. And so there's more demand for the lawyers out there that are, that are working now than there was in February. So to, to our early discussion about technology, it feels like something that is, is separating. And I, I think you nailed it on the head, the crises like, uh, the COVID-19 crisis, we also saw it, I think, in the 2008-2009 financial crisis. 
there's there's law firms that emerge from those crises stronger and 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 better than when they entered the crises and and some that emerge significantly weakened or as as you mentioned even having closed down potentially as a result it feels like the the key differentiating factor between the the winners and losers of this crisis orbits around technology how well has the firm been able to embrace new technologies but importantly not just internally facing technologies, but client facing technologies. How are you interacting with clients on, on Zoom, maybe via other tools like client portals? Can, can you talk a little bit about what that looks like for, for you and maybe also what you've seen in terms of client readiness to adopt those tools as well? You're dealing with pretty high stakes stuff from you know financially high stakes, emotionally high stakes, the kind of stuff that you know maybe traditionally we would have thought this has got to happen in a room. This has got to happen in person. And I imagine you're having at least some of those conversations, those high stakes conversations over a Zoom call. And tell me how that's going. Tell, tell me what you've seen on the, the client side and maybe uh, what, what the client facing technology picture looks like for, for you as well. Those are great questions. Um, and I, man, I mean, there's just so much there to what you just said. I know there's a lot there. So unpack it a piece at a time. Well, okay. What do we use for technology? Um, we use Zoom for most of our communications, for, for most all consultations. At first, you know, Arizona was really slow to lock down and that, you know, every place has its culture. And so we, we were allowing in-office appointments at first, and then we had to get to a point where, you know, I had to say no more in-office appointments. Now we still have exceptions, um, you know, but all of the trials right now are via GoToMeeting or via video. Um, most, the vast majority of client interaction is happening online. Um, we've got uh, all of our file systems, we use Box. And so we've got shared folders that clients upload to. Everything is electronic. All of our billing is electronic. Everything seamlessly, the, the, the processing of the case can happen without a client coming into our office, without mail, without um, just it's pretty darn easy, especially because the court has come in and, and suspended requirements for things like notarization. So um, as far as actual processing of cases, it can be done without ever seeing our clients face to face. Now that works for some clients and it doesn't work for other clients. Um, and some clients begrudgingly are, are dealing with it because we're in a pandemic, but most certainly will want the ability to meet face to face with their attorney in the future. And so another, you know, another um, part of my decision making process has to be what happens with office space moving forward. And, and I am actually investing in building out new office space, which we needed to do anyway, but I'm really rethinking like, what does that office space need to look like? How will it be used? What is important to clients? What is important to my, my team and my staff? Um, the technology piece has to be there, but for those law firms that didn't have electronic files, and hadn't you know thought about e-signatures like your head was in the sand and you're setting yourself and your clients up for failure and you it's you still have time to make corrections but like the time to put your head in the sand has to be done 
it's time to either associate with a firm that has already done all of that so you can just practice law mm -hmm. or dig into the technology because your clients need it in order for you to practice efficiently. And then the other thing that we're seeing is when it comes to trials, we're winning more trials. And one of the reasons we're winning more of trials is because we are so comfortable with electronic evidence and with video calls. And all of this takes practice and time, and there's nothing that should be stopping you from investing in that practice right now. Um, we've got videos for our clients on how to use Zoom. We've got videos for our clients on how to set up monitors or exhibits if they're doing a hearing with their lawyers. We've changed our protocols to um, include practice before video hearings with, to prep our clients for it. So just the, the systems and the processes and the way that you're practicing has to be tweaked. Yeah, it's, it's interesting what you're, you're commenting on in terms of what is giving you the edge in the so-called courthouse now is, is actually how facile you are with these video tools and pulling up electronic evidence and even training your clients to, to be strong at that, that stuff. It's, it's super interesting. Um, let's talk about the the deregulation and, and some of the cool stuff happening in, in Arizona right now as well, Billy, because this might uh, be a preview of what more of the country will be seeing over the coming, coming months and coming years. So you worked on a task force in Arizona, uh, which just recently became the first state uh, in the United States to formally allow non-lawyers to become co-owners of law firms. And, and this is uh, on the heels of the, the Supreme Court opinion in, in Utah, which, which is creating a, uh, a sandbox that's allowing some of the same kind of regulatory changes. But it feels like um, Arizona came out and, and, and just did it and, and maybe kind of did a leapfrog over the, the sandbox period. Uh, that we're seeing in Utah. Can, can you talk a little bit about what what's happening in Arizona? Um, would love to hear a bit more about the, the backstory on the task force that you're involved in and in driving some of these uh, regulatory reforms. And, and ultimately, what do you think the significance of this is if, if you're a law firm owner in, in Arizona, what's the future going to look like? Yeah, so um, this is major. So Arizona just passed two major reforms. One of them is um, allowing, you know, referral fees, fee splitting, outside investment, um, you know, ownership, not even like co-ownership, any ownership of a law firm. You could have it a law firm in Arizona entirely owned by non-lawyers. And all you have to have is a designated lawyer who's responsible for the delivery of legal services. So this is massive changes. Um, the other massive change is that Arizona is allowing legal practitioners to practice law without a law degree, including going to court, including mediating on someone's behalf with you know, really very little scope um, prohibitions, uh, including in family law. So lawyers are freaking out because what you used to have to have a license to do now you don't you don't need a law degree you have to go you have to meet certain criteria you have to go through the process certified but you now you know as a as an experienced paralegal can practice law so um how did we get here 
I was on, I was fortunate enough, very, very, it was just such a great experience to be on this task force with um, these very smart people and to get educated on what does the prohibition of, you know, non-lawyer ownership, how does it protect the public? Because that's why, and lawyers are angry because lawyers feel threatened, but, but does 5.4 protect the public? was our first question. And we couldn't find any evidence that 5.4 protected the public. And so, so while we talked about a sandbox and we talked about you know, what other countries had done and what other states had done and how we could maybe dip our toe in the water, we ultimately decided not to recommend dipping our toe in the water because of that one point. And so every, every criticism has to go back to, does this regulation protect the public? Since it, since we couldn't find that it did, we recommended that we abolish 5.4. Now, along with those recommendations, you know, it, you have to register as an ABS, as an alternative business structure. You're still subject to the um, state bar and to uh, discipline and, and to losing that license. Um, but because it's not a sandbox, it doesn't expire. And we have no idea really what might happen. Can you tell us about the time frame that this uh, this task force worked over to, uh, to 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 make these changes and and what kind of what kind of response are you are you seeing to the changes on the ground right now? Um, so I think the task force started maybe fifteen months ago, and um, the task force was divided into two groups, and there were some other changes as well. Like the uh, we we recommended allowing lay legal advocates for domestic violence victims. We recommended allowing the certification of lawyers. Um, uh, you know, lawyers could always be certified to practice if they were with I think a the school, um, but now private firms can allow you know, non-licensed, that's after graduation and before you take the bar, now they can practice. So those are two, you know, smaller items that came out of the task force. But we were divided into two groups and the two groups were really looking at whether or not to allow legal practitioners, something like the triple LPs. And Arizona already has certified legal document preparers. And that's what the, the company that I own, I do over, um, is a certified legal doc prep company. Now that that has been allowed in Arizona for 20 years. And there were still people on the task force debating whether or not that was a good idea. But what we looked at was, well, what's the impact been? Um, a, the impact hasn't been huge. So, and that's one of the things that lawyers have said, we don't need, we don't need lay practitioners because does it really help people? But I, I can tell you, I know many certified legal document preparers I, first of all, I, I, I hire some, they work for me and they make a living and they have a business and they help clients. So is it, you know, did it fix access to justice? No, but is it a functioning, um, useful thing that clients should have the opportunity to buy? I, I think so, yes. And I think it's good for certified legal document preparers and I think it's good for um, clients and consumers. So part, part of the question was, do we expand their abilities? And, you know, we have massively. Um, secondarily, do we, do we look at allowing ABSs? So, Billy, 15 months from start to finish on this scope and impact of change feels like, comparatively speaking, light speed uh, for, for this kind of regulatory reform. Can, can you talk about how it 
transpired so quickly and, um, and, and what some of the inner workings looked like to get there so quickly? So it was, a, it was I, I think a couple things happened. This was spearheaded by our Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is the body that gets to make these decisions. So um, they truly wanted this information and they wanted recommendations and they wanted change. Um, and that, that matters. So this wasn't a, a, some futile ex exercise in academia. It was not. It was extremely practical and focused and intense. And, and the meetings were, um, they were well run. They were, we were charged with doing a lot of work in a very short period of time, including drafting and digging into the current rules. So we spent a few, uh, you know, the first few months getting educated and we had speakers talk to us from all over the place, both um, within the country and internationally on what had been done before. And we talked about the pros and cons of how other reforms had played out. Um, we vehemently debated what it would look like to have non-lawyer ownership, what it would look like if Walmart owned a law firm. And that is usually what lawyers and, you know, what lawyers push back on. Could you imagine Walmart owning a law firm? And we said, yes, we could. What would that really right. look like? Let's not stop with the question of, oh my gosh, what if Costco or Walmart owned a law firm? Let's push it forward and say, well, what if they did? What would be the pros? What would be the cons? Who would be hurt? Who would be benefited? How might we regulate that? Who should be responsible for making sure that confidentiality and competency is, um, is protected? And we don't have 100% certainty on these answers, but we do know that increasing access to justice is the goal. And if Walmart or Amazon can invest and make legal clinics work so that lawyers are employed full-time and there's enough advertising dollars to get a person in the chair next, next to the lawyer each day for a low-cost amount of money, that will work. And that's a model I tried when I opened in Arizona, that very concept. And it worked, but not well enough. It, there wasn't enough money to drive enough volume to make that work. But did people want it? Yes. Our first year in Arizona, when we opened in a clinic-like um, capacity, we had a thousand clients, which wasn't enough at $99 an hour. But the concept would have worked. And I think it still will work. So we really challenged the notions of our preconceived um, knowledge of how law firms run and what our legal profession looked like to say, well, how can we increase access to justice? So if you're a lawyer on the, the ground in Arizona right now and, and contemplating how some of these ABS entities might change the landscape, how Walmart or Amazon getting into legal services might change the landscape, or maybe what opportunities it opens up for you as a lawyer uh, to, to maybe innovate, do things in a different way. What would your, some of your comments on, on those fronts be in terms of what we should anticipate and what, what opportunities this might be opening up? So that's a great question. And I'm a lawyer with a law firm and I'm nervous. <laughs> I mean, I'm excited, but I'm nervous. Yeah. Um, what, what do I do? <laughs> what if, um, what if Costco or Amazon takes over all family law? Okay, 
all right, let's, you know, let's take a deep breath and, and think about what next. First of all, I'm going to offer LP services through the law firm. So I'm an expert on Arizona family law. And if you are owning a law firm anywhere, you are an expert. You are an expert more than Costco, more than Walmart. You know your, your community, you know your judges, like don't discount the knowledge that you have and um, think about how you might offer that to your clients. This is another offering that you get to present that you didn't have before. So that's one of the ways that I'm looking at this. The other way I'm looking at this is how can my law firm be ready and be prepared to take investment dollars? How can I be as well run foundationally so that if that opportunity presents itself, we, I may or may not want to do that, but how do I make sure that if, if that's happening, I'm, I'm well positioned. And then third, think about who Walmart serves and who Costco serves and think about how, what is most valuable, what, are you offering as a lawyer that is most valuable? And it is not documents. It is not churning out um, you know, advice in an hour that doesn't come with an in-depth knowledge of someone's, uh, someone's experience. What we offer that is most valuable is counsel and trust. And no Walmart and no Amazon can take that away. So our emotional intelligence becomes more important. Our um, specialized knowledge and ability to present information in court becomes more valuable. And we really have to think about who our market is. So one of the things that I talked to my firm about when the pandemic hit was, if we look at society and we've got society in a triangle and the low cost divorces are, are down here, you know, because one of the things we look at is average client spend. One of the things you look at at Clio is average client spend. If my average client spend is down here, you know, I'm serving the, the lower um, income market and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And that market is probably going to get bigger after this pandemic, after this right. recession. And the middle income market where we serve, because our average client spends about $6,500. So we're right in the middle. Um, that's going to get smaller. So what do we want to do as a law firm, guys? Are we going to move towards... Uh, the bottom where we're serving a higher volume or are we going to move towards the top where our services are getting more expensive our average client spend is going up and we're serving fewer clients for higher dollars and that's what we decided so we made a concerted effort to figure out how are we going to set up our firm for that and i think that that same concept is present here with the idea that amazon or costco or walmart may come in and take over that low-hanging fruit of um, transactional type work. And we've seen that play out in, in other areas, legal zoom with incorporations and so on. It's not eliminating the need for business lawyers, but if you're in that highly transactional, highly automatable part of the market, you're going to be experiencing a lot of pressure. So I think as you pointed out, thinking about where you're living in that value chain and how to differentiate yourselves uh, is, is really key and something I think law firms need to be putting especially law firms in Arizona, but probably law firms everywhere need to be putting some really deliberate thought into. So Billy, to it's been a, a wonderful discussion to, to close out our discussion. I'm, I'm wondering if we can tie together some of the themes we've talked about today as, as it relates to, to access to justice. If we're looking at what makes a thriving firm over, over the next five years, it's against the backdrop of, you know, number one, I think a, a tsunami of legal need that has been 
uh, building up over the course of, course of the COVID pandemic, uh, many COVID specific legal issues that are starting to, to come to the fore. Uh, consumers that are less able to pay for legal services than, than ever and uh, legal services were, were out of reach for many consumers before the pandemic and are only more out of reach today. If we're, if we're thinking about increasing access to justice and we're thinking about the opportunity that exists for law firms that really look at the right mix of pricing and packaging and technology to, to win in this market, what, what do you think that, that magic combination is? What would you recommend to, uh, to law firms that are maybe thinking carefully about what do I do to thrive over the next five years? Uh, what do I do to increase access to justice for, for people that need it more than ever? What are, what are some of the takeaways you'd leave our, our listeners with on that front? So I love that question. And they almost seem as if they are in contradiction to one another. Um, which is something that I've had to grapple with right. because I started out, you know, very, very committed to access to justice. The access legal name came because I wanted to serve lower income clients as the 10 years has evolved. Um, I don't I don't have a low cost law firm. I charge $400 an hour. So I had to grapple with how do I continue to offer, um, access to justice and, and, and play a part in that and also grow a thriving law firm that pays well for attorneys and that keeps people long-term and that offers great benefits. And so I did that through two companies, one whose mission was access to justice by offering legal document preparers and online courses. And um, I'm also adding therapists. So other ways to serve um, lower income people and then how do I set up the law firm? So I think like mostly this comes down to mission. What do you have the bandwidth to do? I think you can be profitable serving any client base. If you choose that client base, if you understand who am I serving and how do I serve them well, you can be profitable and successful and set yourself up no matter what you choose, but you have to choose something and you have to do it intentionally because it doesn't look the same. And if we don't choose, if we do not choose, then those, those lawyers that are doing a lot of transactional work are going to probably end up working for Walmart. And maybe that's not so bad. I mean, there are optometrists that work for Walmart. There are pharmacists that work for Walmart. There are people who are professionals who go to work and yes, they work for Walmart, but they, they, they make a good living. They serve a lot of people and they're happy doing that. So maybe we just have to shift our mind frame a little bit between be, be, uh, from thinking that that would be so awful to thinking, would I be open to that? Or do I want something else? And if I want something else, how am I going to make sure I get what I want? Right. There's a, a quote from the Utah Supreme court opinion on dr driving the regulatory reforms in, uh, in Utah that I love, which was uh, the, the phrase was, we're not going to volunteer ourselves across the access to justice gap. You know, the access to justice gap isn't just low income. It's not just pro bono. We're, we're seeing consumers of all stripes find challenges with connecting with lawyers that can help them with their problems. So I think, I think that takeaway is a, a super important one is get really explicit about the market you're serving and the business model that will support that market. And there's many different ways to thrive in this market, but you need an opinionated take 
on which segment you're going to be serving and how you're going to serve it. Absolutely. Could not agree more. Awesome. Well, Billy, loved this conversation. So much more we could dig into, but the, the time has flown by, um, but would love to pick up our conversation again at some point and see how things have evolved in Arizona. It's, it's uh, the dawn of a new era and uh, there'll be a lot of exciting change, I'm sure, over the coming months and years. So look forward to staying connected with you and, and hearing how that's going. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider for supporting this podcast.